Good afternoon. <clears throat> Glad that you're back. The uh, sermon this afternoon is going to be connected to the first, the, the one we looked at this morning in some regard. <clears throat> As this morning, we, in our sermon, we noticed that one church is not just as good as, as another. Concerning a lot of things, one thing is not just as good as another, but especially concerning the, the church. And if you're here this afternoon with us or you're watching online and you, and you have not uh, heard that sermon, I would uh, recommend that you go watch that one and then come back uh, to this one. <clears throat> uh, Christ purchased the one church and it existed long before any of the denominations we see around today. It was sufficient for the needs of man and it is sufficient for the needs of man today. And therefore, we don't really have any need for any other churches today, nor is there any authority for their existence. These are things that we looked at in depth this morning. It, and it's, it's a hard lesson, it really is, because, it, and it's not necessarily hard because it's hard to see it in the Bible. It's hard because it's hard to come to grips with what that means in our lives. And, and that is that it means a lot of good people will be lost. Friends, neighbors, my own family members and likely some of your family members. And uh, salvation, though, was never just about being good. Salvation is about, about sin and, and about removing sin, and we can't be good enough to be saved. It's not, not possible. And Well, those that teach that there, is, there are saved in all denominations, those that teach join the church of your own choice, or that we are saved by, uh, we're all on the same path, just, or, or we're all headed to the same destination just by different roads, etc., they will often have answers for the things that I had this would that the things that I suggested and showed from scripture this morning, they would have some answers to some of those things. And so to, this afternoon, I want to look at some of their proof text passages, some of the things, uh, some of their passages and some of the arguments that they might suggest that they might use in trying to defend denominationalism. Things, passages that they would go to to suggest that well, this gives authority for denominations. You know, among the many things I showed this morning, there's no authority for, an, for, a, for a denomination as we see it today. Something that is smaller than the universal church, yet larger than the local church. We know of no use in Scripture where the word church is ever used that way. And so it, the task is theirs to find authority. For such an institution and many have sought out authority in the scriptures and we want to look at some of those arguments uh, this afternoon. Now you might have heard some of these yourself but if you haven't uh, we certainly I certainly hope that after this sermon this afternoon that you will be equipped to answer some of these things and so I have I think nine nine or so different points this afternoon. <clears throat> Number one Denominations, it has been suggested that denominations are sheep of another fold. They are pointing to John chapter 10, verse number 16. I'm going to read the verse to you and then we will look at their claim and then we'll look at the problem with their claim. Number one, Starting at chapter 10, verse number 16 of John. Jesus said, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And so their claim from this text is that the other fold that Jesus speaks of 
our other denominations. <clears throat> and so what's the problem with this claim? Well, the problem is mainly that they have taken this passage out of the context in which it was meant. And honestly, I think it would be hard to say that it was taken out of context mistakenly. At least maybe, maybe some, uh, some people have been taught this and they don't, maybe some people don't know any better, but those men who, have, who are, are students of the Bible, who are serious students of the Bible, those who, have, who spend day in and day out in God's Word, it's hard for me to imagine that this mistake was, that this is an honest mistake. This is, this is a representation of religious bias. One looking, looking for an answer are looking for authority. Jesus is actually speaking to the Jews. And they, the Jews have often been referred to in Scripture as a flock. Just a couple instances of that. Ezekiel chapter 34 verse 17. Zechariah 9.16. And there are others where the Jews are referred to as the flock of God. And so who are the sheep of another fold? This is an obvious reference to the Gentiles. Paul said he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Uh, the gospel is the power of God and the salvation to the Jew and, into, and to the Greek. And so the other fold is the, the Greeks, the Jew, or the Gentiles. You know, many of the Old Testament prophets, you go, especially among the minor prophets, you can find lots of statements within those books of the prophets that indicate that one of, the, one of the signs, one of the things that the Messiah was going to do when He came was He was going to break down that wall of petition between the, the, the Jew and the Greek. He was going to bring those two folds together into one. I just thought of the, brand, the, the broken stick. At, uh, who was, was it Ezekiel that talked about the, the broken reed and He was going to join those two parts together? One represented the Jew, one represented the Gentile. Uh, another one example I think of just off the top of my head, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, where he said, we talked about that, uh, about all nations shall flow into it. He was talking about that kingdom that Christ would, would build, that the Messiah would build when he came, and all nations would flow into it. And so this is seen through, repeatedly throughout the scripture, and it is the obvious. Uh, context in which Jesus was speaking. And so uh, that should help to answer <clears throat> this one. Let's look at another one. I'm the vine and, uh, and you are the branches, Jesus said. The, Jesus is the vine, but they want to tell us that denominations are the branches. So let's look at John chapter 15, verse number 5. John 15, 5. Jesus said, I am the vine and ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him... The same, excuse me, bringeth forth fruit, forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Now the claim that they offer sometimes is that the vine represents the church and the branches represent different denominations. Well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that uh, claim? Well, here's their problem. Jesus defined what he was talking about in the passage. In verse number 6, the branches representing, uh, they have the branches representing denominations, but Jesus has the branches representing individuals. Please notice verse number 6. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into fire and they are burned. You see, the, a vine produces the same fruit. 
It's rather foolish to suggest that one vine could produce over 300 different kinds of fruit. And how many denominations do we have out out there today? Well, well over 300, to be honest. It's contrary to to nature. It's absurd to claim that all the different denominations teaching all these different doctrines are of the very same vine. Again, violation of the context, violation of the very words of Jesus when he told us in verse number 6 what that vine and branches represented. Let's look at another one. It's been claimed that denominations are different bodies, but they are all answering to the same head, which is Christ. Their claim, denominationalism, represents a multiplicity of religious bodies. But they all recognize Jesus as their head, therefore they claim to exist by divine approval. The problem with this is that Jesus said that he is the head of the body, the church universal, as we looked at today, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12 and 13, Ephesians 5, 23, Ephesians 4, 4, many other passages. The church universal is made up of local autonomous congregations. Denominations claim to be something smaller than the church universal, as we looked at this morning, but they are also something larger than the local church. And there is no divine approval for such an organization. Therefore, though they may claim that Christ is their head, Christ only claims to be the head of one body. And they are not of that body. And so therefore, again, this claim does not hold water either. This this claim does not offer authority for denominations. Let's look at another one. Their claim, and this one is, denominations are just different brands. Their claim... On ranches, cattle are given different brands, but they're all still just cattle. And so they want to tell us that members of various denominations may have different names, different brands, but they're all still Christians. Well, what's the problem with this? First of all, this isn't biblical authority. This is an illustration. Second of all, that being said, their illustration carries more significance than I think they even intend. Cattle are branded different. Cattle being branded differently indicates what? It indicates that they have different owners, right? And Jesus does not brand his true followers with different religious names. Jesus wants us to be all branded with his name. No responsible rancher would ever place someone else's brand on his cattle. That would never, never ever happen. Those who wear different names are owned by someone else. But Christ has purchased us and he has put his brand on us. In fact, we can find out what that brand is in Acts chapter 11 and verse number 26. And when he had found him, he brought him into Antioch and it came to pass a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now there's the brand that I want to wear. That's the brand that's authorized for Christians to wear. And first, in fact, I think the authorization even goes further than that. If you would turn with me back to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 62. Now I want you to notice that this, this name, this is something that was foretold, prophetically foretold. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 62, verse number 2. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, 
This, this actually goes back to the first point we made too, doesn't it? About how the prophets talked about the Gentiles and the Jews being brought into one fold. This, this goes back to that point as well. But notice, and the Gentiles shall see the righteousness and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Now if that name is not Christian, we don't have it recorded in Scripture. That name is Christian. Christian is the name that the Lord has designated us to be called. And so therefore, any other brand we wear would signify that someone else owns us besides Christ. <clears throat> Friends, this is not this argument, though interesting, is certainly not certainly not authoritative for denominations. Here's one. Now some of these uh, we talked about, we've already talked about some of these in the sermon this morning, so I'll just brush over them lightly. Uh, of course, some say that we're just all traveling by different roads. This again isn't a biblical uh, a biblical authority, a claim this isn't a reference to the Bible in any way, but they the sincere, upright members of all denominations, they tell us, are all going, going to heaven. We're just traveling, or they're just traveling by different roads. The problem with this is that though there may be some places on earth there may be, that there may be many different ways, different roads that you can travel to, when we read the Bible and we read of the place called heaven, we find exact statements that say, suggest the opposite, that there is only one way to heaven. There are not many ways that you can go. Jesus said, Jesus talked about two, two ways, one wide and broad, and many are going in that, and they're going to be lost. But the one way to heaven is straight and narrow, and few will enter by that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes by, to the Father but by me. And so therefore, this illustration as it is, does not, is apples to oranges. It does not convey a biblical truth. Let's look at another. Sincerity is all that matters. Their claim, their claim, it doesn't matter what one believes. It doesn't matter what one practices in religion as long as he is sincere. And the loyal members of denominations sincerely believe that they are doing good and that is all that really counts, we're often told. But in regard to that, there's some problems. First of all, let's consider Saul of Tarsus. Saul was sincere. In Acts chapter 26 verse 9, Saul said, I verily thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then in Acts 23, 1, Paul said, earnestly beholding the counsel, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. And so Paul was certainly a sincere man. Everything he did, he did with sincerity before God Almighty but sincerity did not make him right. He was still lost. He still had to obey the gospel. Acts chapter 22, verse 16, he was told what to do in order to be saved. Arise, be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He still had sin. He still was lost. And so though he was sincere, friends, he was sincerely wrong. Others also, we could talk about James chapter 2, verse 19, how the, how the demons are sincere in their belief, according to, uh, to James. We could talk about Cornelius, a man who, who the Bible speaks exemplary of his faith and his sincerity, but still he was lost because he was worshiping God according to a system that was outdated. We can be sincere and we can be wrong. We can be sincerely wrong. For example, you can believe that the electricity is off and grab a hot wire and you'll find out real quick. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. Think that food's safe, that it has poison in it. You're going to be sick. We 
go on and on. How can one call himself sincere, though, while rejecting what the Bible says about truth and sincerity? <clears throat> Let's move on to another one. We, can all under, we can't all understand the Bible alike. Their claim sometimes is that denominations exist because of their differences in doctrine, of doctrine and practice, and that's all because it's impossible for mankind, mankind to all understand the Bible alike. Well, I certainly hope that that's not the truth. If it's impossible for us to understand, for us to all have the same mind and judgment, that it's impossible for us to do what God commanded us to do. Because we have been commanded to see things, to uh, all be of the same mind and the judgment. Here's their problem. If it's impossible for us to see the Bible alike, as so many assert, then why was the Bible given by, as a revelation to convey the thoughts of God to the minds of men? Why did He do that if it was impossible for us to understand? If there's no understanding then it's either the fault of the revealer or the fault of the listener. Now, which is it? Who's willing to stand here today and say, well, it's the fault of God. God just can't, God doesn't know how to convey His thoughts to me in such a way that I can understand it. I'm not going to make that <coughs> affirmation there. And furthermore, can all readers understand the works of men alike? I know I, I'm a, I, I love the Lord of the Rings books. You know, I've never met anybody who was also a fan of the Lord of the Rings who came to a different understanding of that book than me. You know, we all understand it alike. You know, what about The Kill a Mockingbird? Great, great classic work. Uh, ever, I've never met anyone who, did, who, who came to a different conclusion from that book than what's suggested in the book. <clears throat> Art, what about textbooks at school? The, the grades given to us certainly expect us to all come to the same conclusion. Then why not the Bible? Can the authors of these books do something that God and the Holy Spirit and Christ cannot do? Can the authors of these human productions convey their, their, their teachings in such a way that we can understand them all alike, but God cannot do the same? It's preposterous. Remember how Paul said how that in Ephesians 3, 3 through 5, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery as before I wrote in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand the knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, but is now revealed by His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul certainly was under the impression that we all could come to a same understanding and conclusion through his writings. Paul said that we are to understand of God is. He said, Wherefore, be you not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Ephesians 5, 17. Again, we noted this morning that we are not only able to, but we're commanded to come to the same understanding. Remember what we looked at this morning from 1 Corinthians 1, 10? I beseech you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together by the same mind and the same judgment. Would God require of us something that we could not, that it would be impossible for us to do, to understand the Bible? When we understand the Bible correctly, we will understand it alike. The truth can be understood. <clears throat> and so let's move on to another point that we, you might often hear brought up. And that is that, well, we... All the denominations at least agree on essential matters, and so it's not that big of a deal. Our points of difference aren't essential, they would say. It's true that 
denominations disagree regarding certain doctrines and practices, and, but are these really unessential matters? Concerning the essentials, such as the belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the acceptance of moral principles, they say, the, the, well, according to those types of things, denominations are all united. Well, here's the problem with that. These denominations can't agree among themselves what is essential and what is not essential. And what they, and what is not, <coughs> or excuse me, uh, what they don't, what they don't often tell you is they don't even agree among, often they don't even agree among the same denomination on what things are essential and what things are not. <clears throat> but what they will often do is rather say that they are in agreement on these certain things just so that they can make this argument when in reality they are not. Why would God burden us down with a whole lot of non-essential matters anyway? Paul, Paul certainly didn't convey this idea when he said all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That's not the idea that Paul seemed to suggest. When he said, <clears throat> when Jesus said, teach them to do, observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. <clears throat> and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. When Jesus gave the great, great commission, he said to teach the believers all things that he commanded. He didn't say teach some of them or most of them, but all of them. He didn't say, well, some of these things are essential and some of these things are not. And so this argument being discussed here is a definite admission by those in the denominations that theirs is a failure to follow God's word by going beyond his law. But what they're saying is that they know that their teaching is different from the word of God, but they're claiming that those things that are different from God's word are non-essential things in order to authorize or allow themselves to do those things. Friends, if any part of God's word is unimportant or non-essential, then we can easily dismiss anything we want to dismiss. Who's going to say what's essential and what's not essential? There's another argument that you might hear, and that is, well, I've heard this one many times. Well, all churches have problems. Even the first century ones, and everybody loves to bring up Corinth. Of course, Corinth was a congregation that was plagued with many problems. And so they will say that no church is perfect. Our creedal differences are no worse than the shortcomings of any congregation. They will suggest that we should just be unified in our diversity and look over the differences that we have. They will often note that Corinth had many problems and that Paul still wrote them and still considered them brethren. The problem with this line of thinking is that, well, first of all, it is true that, in, that the first century churches certainly had a lot of problems. For one thing, the faith was new. And the body, the, the, the faith, the body of doctrine was still being revealed by the apostles. So obviously they had a lot of problems. And it's also true that Paul still planned to come to Corinth and still wrote them and considered them brethren even though they had some very serious problems among them. It is also true though, and this is the point that they fail to notice, fail to consider in this scenario, it is also true that Paul wrote the first letter to them as a letter of rebuke because of the problems that they had. And in it he urged them to repent and even threatened them with his apostolic power. Look specifically at chapter 4, 14 through 21 for that. But there's the only location in the letter where he made such threats and 
and urged them to repent. However, by the time he wrote them the second letter, he reflects back and rejoices in the fact that they received his, le- his first letter in a favorable way and that it brought about their repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 8-10. So what we have here in the case of Corinth is a divine standard on how to deal with congregations who are in error. We need to confront them with the truth. Sometimes even two or three times, according to, <coughs> to was it Paul or John who said a, a heretic rebuke the second and the third time. And we need to urge them to repent. And if they want, won't do so, then we need to reject them as a heretic and keep no company with them, to partake not in their deeds. Jesus also had similar threats and warnings to the churches of Asia. <coughs> and so, friends, what we've tried to do here this afternoon is just show you some of the, some of the arguments that are po- popular. Now, there's a nine different points here. I mean, we, certainly we could have said a whole lot more about all these points, but this should suffice to the bird's eye view of, of these different arguments that you're likely to hear when you talk to individuals who actually will double down and try to defend uh, the fact that, or, or try to defend the existence of denominations. Hopefully these things will be helpful to you. You can study these and you can pick them out a little bit more for yourself and be ready to give an offense if the time ever comes that you needed to do so. We've ex- we have explained the attempts to find biblical authority for denominations, and we found each one of these has failed miserably. The truth is, the reason they fail is but all these fail is because there is no authority in the Scripture for denominations. Since the truth is so evident and so different from what we are being, is being sold wholesale to the masses, shouldn't we be telling others about it? Shouldn't we be signaling the alarm? Shouldn't we give people warning? I'm glad that these lessons are now recorded and posted online. That means if, if this comes up in your life with a neighbor, a friend you're talking to, six months from now, you don't have to come to me and say, Brother Bruce, would you preach that sermon again? Of course, I'd be glad to do so, but there's a better option. Now you can go straight to the Internet, to our YouTube channel, and you can look at this for yourself, and you can be ready, and I would be pleased if you, if you would use these in that way. We want to close, as we always do, with an invitation <coughs> to, for, to, the, to the church of Jesus Christ, an invitation to be saved, to have your sins washed away. How do we do that? The Bible's very clear on the matter. Acts chapter 2, verse 37, 38, when the people on the day the church was, began, when they asked what they, they should do because of their sins, they were told very clearly, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of their sins. They were baptized for the purpose of the remission of their sins. Now, just to be clear, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away sins, but baptism is the process by which God has determined to do that. And so we need to make sure that we're clear on that point. A lot of times our, our friend, the people that we study with have misunderstanding. You're trying to tell me that something about water washes sins away? And if you try to hear that with ears that aren't used to hearing it like ours are, if you try to hear that as someone new, and how would they take that? It is rather absurd to think that water could wash away sins. But that's not what we're saying. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away sins, but God has determined it is, by the, it is through the water that the operation of God is performed. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. And so if you've not been baptized, then you've not had your sins washed away. 
Therefore, you still have sin in your life. And the Bible's clear that no sin will enter into heaven. So today, we would urge you to have those sins washed away. The Bible also tells us that baptism, in addition to washing our sins away, it's also the process by which God gives us entrance into the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. Are you in the body? Are your sins remiss? Are your sins forgiven? If not, why, do, why, not, why stop now? Why not do something about that? Why not make heaven your home this very moment? as we stand and sing.